0: to trends and tensions presented by bhdp where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations enterprises and institutions if you enjoy what you hear we encourage you to rate subscribe and give us a review on today's episode we tackle one of the most talked about topics in workplace the open office i am your host brian trainer a workplace strategist for bhdp I'm joined by two of my BHDP co-workers to share their research and experience on this topic,
1: and I'll let them introduce themselves.
2: Yeah, I'm Drew Susco. I'm a lead strategist and architect with BHDP Architecture.
1: And I'm Dominic Iacobucci. I'm a client leader and architect at BHDP Architecture.
0: Great. We've been lucky enough to have Dominic before. Drew, this is your uh, long-time listener, first-time sitter, downer, talker? First-time talker, be nice. (laughs) So let's get right into it. what do you consider or how would you describe or define an open office? And Drew, do, do you want to go first?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, I think that the first thing to maybe address is why we're talking about open offices to begin with. Right. So lots of debate uh, in the media and also in offices across the U.S. and obviously across the globe about the open office, which is a concept that you know keeps people up at night to say the least. When we talk about open office, we actually tend to talk about Most contemporary offices in the U.S. So most people are familiar with a couple of workplace design principles, concepts in workplace design. Um, The office, which in our mind's eye, right, is a place (laughs) with a door. (laughs) Offices tend to be anywhere from like six feet by eight feet up to the largest I've seen, which is uh, up to 20 by 40, which is a huge office. But in our mind's eye, right, an office is a place where one, typically one, maybe two people go and close the door and do work in an isolated manner. Most of us don't live in that world, right? Most of us live in an office environment where we sit somewhat adjacent to others. So historically speaking, when we think about the open office, uh, in our mind's eye, it probably conjures images of endless rows of cubicles, you know, people sitting in little gray boxes. But the reality is the contemporary office actually has a, a host of different planning elements within it, <clears throat> all under one roof, which is why the, the open and open office. So there tend not to be dividers between spaces. And as a result of that, people can interact with each other across that lack of divide. But things like sound, things of that nature travel across the divide as well.
0: Right. So you were delineating between the definition of office, which is the old traditional four walls and a door, one guy in a desk, and that's, that's office. But an open office is a different concept where it's just um, open for one and the other. Dominic, you want to?
1: Well, yeah, that's true, Brian. I mean, for the most part, everyone, when they hear open office, it's anything that isn't the single person in four walls with a, with a ceiling. And to Drew's point, there's a lot of variations on that, and there's a lot of dynamics on that, which makes this conversation complicated. But for most part, it's a huge category, and when people are thinking open office, they're always going to worst-case scenario, which is a ton of desks packed into a small area. Right, and that usually is the angst that gets riled up when people
0: hear open office, because I know we've all facilitated groups with clients. What kind of reactions have you had from people when they think that it's going to be open office.
2: So in, when we're interacting with clients, typically they tend to be coming from uh, a cubicle environment, so maybe even to take a step back. So. The open office has been around for a long time. Here at BHTP in Cincinnati, we actually work in a converted industrial facility <laughs> that was designed actually to manufacture blue overalls. Je- yeah, yeah jeans, overalls right? and blue yeah. jeans and things of that <laughs> nature. And people worked very close together, side by side with a wearing machinery around them. This space has been converted from that use to what we use it for today, which is getting work done, right? That's true of spaces all across, all across the country. When we work with our clients, sometimes that's in a a high rent district like New York or Chicago or LA um, or Tokyo or London where space comes at a premium and people are are more or less kind of packed in a high density fashion into the environment together. Um, But sometimes we're working with clients who have space say out in the suburbs, right? In an office park or something of that nature. You asked about the anxiety with respect to open office. People tend to be coming from an environment that they're comfortable with and sometimes they're comfortable with say a cubicle environment where they've gotten used to it, it's what works for them, it's, you know, you come in every single day and you kind of know what to expect, to something else. And that something else, defining that something else obviously is the fun of the design process. (laughs) Um, But for them, that unknown is a big hurdle. So in their minds, I oftentimes, they're jumping to um, what they perceive to be an open office, which tends to be, I'm making air quotes, tends to be rows of desks with a lack of spatial separation between those desks.
0: And that reinforces what Dominic said, where their mind instantly goes to a worst case scenario. Is that fair
2: yeah that's absolutely fair the
1: reality is people only know what they know yeah. and we've had the beautiful opportunity in pop culture to have movies like office space right <laughs> which reinforce the worst of what open office can be um, and with that the the overall movement of going to cubicles that drew was mentioning a lot of people when they moved from closed offices into cubicles they moved into these rat mazes with these tall walls that separated them into these closed, dark corners, right? Mm -hmm. Starting to make it sound wonderful, right? Yeah, it's great. So so no matter what happens from that, as people move forward, when they hear open office, they immediately go to the worst case scenario. Fair enough.
0: So why is it such a hot topic? Why are there so many articles about open office now? Because I know, Drew, you have a list of... Of articles. Cause, and it ping-pongs. And it was, here's why it's good. Here's why it's bad. And then it was bad, 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 bad.
2: Yeah. yeah well, it's, was... it's top of mind recently because there have been a number of studies that have been recently released that have picked up a lot of, uh, gotten a lot of traction in, in the media. Uh, but you mentioned a, a list of articles. And I'll just read through them because they're kind of fun. Um, so, Lindsey Kaufman of the Washington Post wrote in December 2014, Google got it wrong. The open office trend is destroying the workplace. <laughs> Pretty followed by language. Maria Konnikova from the New Yorker, January twenty fourteen. The open office trap. Adam Stoltz, the New York Times, bring back cubicles, question mark. <laughs> David Burkus from Forbes, why your open office workspace doesn't work. And the Washingtonian staff, so all collectively, not single person taking credit, why open offices are terrible. So a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot of angst around the open office environment. Quite frankly, this is the media, right? So these things are clickbaity. People click on this stuff. It confirms their suspicions already. We talked about people having in their mind's eye an idea of what the open office entails. They already don't like potentially that idea. Mm-hmm. This confirms that <laughs> their suspicions are true because you read it in a major publication. All of this recent publicity is is really on the back of a couple of studies, uh, one in particular that was performed by a couple of researchers out of out of Harvard, specifically at the Harvard Business School. <clears throat> and These gentlemen performed basically two studies of two Fortune 500 companies that were moving from a traditional cubicle environment into their definition of open office, which was working side by side with no partitions between people. They actually worked in conjunction with Humanize, which is a sociometric um, analytics company. Say that um, three times. Sociometric, <laughs> yep, <laughs> analytics company, um, Humanize, which specializes in studying the interactions between people. And wow. so uh, the, the folks at Humanize actually equipped uh, the people in the study, 50 people in the first study, 100 people in the second study, yeah, with man, these badges.
1: Yeah, imagine it as just a a cell phone hanging around your neck. Which yeah.
0: also
2: seems a little weird. Would you really yeah. talk to
0: that guy with the camera on his neck if you knew it was well, a it's and,
1: it, and the other thing about the study, <laughs> at least... We can't actually, We none of the details of the studies were actually shared. So we don't know exactly how these studies went down. Um, but we do know that in the past when Humanize has done these types of studies, they're opt-in. Right. So when they go to a population, there's no forcing of every person in that population to use that equipment. It's usually whoever's comfortable doing so. Now mm-hmm. with that, they do randomize it. And they do protect the innocent so you don't know who has what sensor it changes day to day Um, but it does skew some of the information
2: yep yep so people opt in Um, they measure before and after 50 people 100 people ethan bernstein is the gentleman from harvard university who conducted the study we don't know which companies were studied that's not been releasing information we don't know what types of work these people do but the, the study was really trying to understand the impact of the open workspace on human collaboration. Right, And what they found was pre and post uh, two things happened. One thing was the amount of face-to-face interaction, which is something that human eyes can study with these badges that you wear on your, your chest more or less can right. study. We found the amount of, or they found the amount of human uh, face-to-face interaction dropped. Um, and they actually found the amount of collaboration across digital platforms, you know, email, chat, whatever, increased. So one of the, the things that um, we kind of hold in our mind's eye about open office design is that theoretically it's meant to promote interaction amongst people. And this study suggests that that did not occur within the conditions that they studied for these two companies with a relatively small set of people.
1: Now, now Drew, do you know if in that study at any point in time were they able to evaluate the quality of said
2: interactions? There's been no reporting on the quality of the interactions. There's been um, no real reporting on the content of the interactions either. And so <clears throat> it's, it's tough to say, right? They, what they basically measured was the volume of communication occurring in pre and post environment over electronic media, the volume increased.
1: And, and the only reason I bring that up is it's a conversation that we're having on different levels, but it's the value of ideas mm-hmm. ultimately. And just because time decreases does not mean the level of value of that communication also decreased, which I think is a very important point to note in this conversation. Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah. And that's interesting because um, I mean, first, you know, provocative question might be, why do we care if people are interacting face to face at all? You know, what if they are effectively communicating better with the email Um, is, is what's the value? Like, what were they hoping to find? Is it, contrary to the pros of open office saying, well, you're going to get more face-to-face interaction. Um, I I feel like I'm searching for something here that I don't know quite how to ask. (laughs) What does your gut say? Well, the gut says, I mean, um, I know that face-to-face interaction is good for building trust among Mm -hmm. teams, right? Um, So if suddenly they're in an environment where they're seeing each other and they're not talking more, um, what's the underlying real
1: problem? But but on the same note, I think if you talk about a culture, let's go let's go to closed office. We probably won't even go into this in detail, right? But just the same way that we can paint that really dark picture about open office, we can do the same thing about closed offices. Closed offices going around the full exterior of the building, blocking all the windows from the interior. As you walk around, you're going down these rat holes and mazes, and, and you never actually can see, you can come into work for a full day and never see another individual, right? We don't need to go down that path. But the point would be when you're in an environment that you're closed off from team members, you're more likely to have to schedule formal collaboration to have any type of conversation. Mm -hmm. The argument is when you go to an open environment, you can actually have spontaneous conversation and collaboration that may occur for a small point in time and answer the question that you want. Um, There was a CFO that we talked to at one point in time from a large company up in uh, Michigan. And he was talking about how he moved from a close office to an open office environment. And when they did that, he was fighting it. He did not want to do it. He thought it was the worst thing ever. He went down the list of everything that you'd expect him to go down. All my work is highly confidential. I'm working with numbers all day. Everyone's going to see it. I need to have secure conversations. I need access to rooms when I want it. What he actually found is when he went to the open office environment, his team was more effective. And the reason they were more effective is because he now had the ability to have five-minute conversations with his team that took away the barriers for that from his team from getting work done. Right. And he equated it to the way that it used to be. So the way it used to be for him is if someone had a five-minute question, they had to schedule a half-an-hour conversation. <laughs> And the second you get in the room for a half an hour conversation, guess how much time you use, Brian? Uh, half hour to 45 minutes. Something. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly Are right. Are counting in the 15 minutes that's and everyone's exactly late to right. the meeting? Yeah. So, so we're sitting here and we're having this conversation about the study that's talking about time, but it's not talking about the human behavioral aspect of that time or the quality what a, of what occurs in that time. Is yeah. there anybody that is
0: effectively measuring behavioral interactions over just Quantity of
2: time. So one of the holy grails in workplace strategy and design is studying productivity and performance. And productivity is something I think we can all easily understand, which is basically inputs converted to outputs. The more outputs converted, more more frequently, the more productive uh, a person or an entity or a, a function is. But the reality is, um, I mean, we're past the information age at this point. We're in the digital age, right? Currency is ideas, and all ideas aren't created equally. And so it's very difficult to measure productivity on a current, you know, currently, because quite frankly, I could sit by myself all year long and have one brilliant idea, <laughs> and that would justify my entire year's salary, provided that the idea was good enough right. and that we could convert it into the value that it inherently so that's has. That's your secret. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just need to have a good idea now. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah the, the second idea around performance. Performance is even fuzzier, um, so there is no universal understanding of what performance is. You know, our clients often talk about performance of their either their businesses, written large, right? So, um, you know, what's the the revenue and profit that we book on an, on any particular year or on p- portions of their business on a smaller scale? So, for instance, if you work in the HR function, attracting, retaining, developing talent, right? You want your people to be highly engaged and to be highly satisfied with their jobs. Oh, by the way, you want them to to be taking on new skills as they emerge um, and contributing back to the business. So in the HR community, maybe that's performance, but that sort of performance doesn't necessarily align directly with performance as measured in marketing, where marketing is about ideas and clicks and um, people engaging with the content that you generate, et cetera. And so it's really difficult at a macro scale to say, here's what matters. Because what matters varies depending on the organization that we're working with.
1: And, and if you go back to the study, the reality is the, the company that they were using with those sensors, they're phenomenal sensors. Like they are actually looking at face-to-face interaction and looking at what's a curse. So they are probably the closest proxy that we have to date. Um, but even in that close proxy, you can't necessarily say, is that conversation of value or is that conversation not a value based off of eye contact and uh, communication length? Mm
0: -hmm. Interesting. Um, what I want to know next, then there's a lot of articles. Most of the ones you listed are anti, um, what are the things that people complain about most? Like what are the biggest cons when people have this perception of open office? Like what's the resistance?
1: From an individual level or from a company level? Well, I'd l- do b- give me That's both. Distinction. Yeah,
0: go individual first, and then let's talk company
1: level. So so from an individual standpoint, typically it goes down to two things. From the actual space, it's noise. Yep. They're always concerned with noise, which you can, can take down the line to concentration, focus, whatever the case may be. Um, the secondary one typically is ownership of space. Mm-hmm and feeling that the ownership of whatever they have in said space is protected and is is allowed to be there, whatever the case may be, right? There's perception if I'm in open office, someone can steal my stuff. So so you got to kind of work over that. Um, If you start going from a company standpoint or a team standpoint, if you take a leader and the leader gets engaged in that, typically a leader would say confidentiality, uh, security of ideas... Yeah, things along a business aspect.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a, a push pull between the needs of the individual and the needs of the organization. That's kind of the central point of this um, topic. And it's why this topic is so rife with um, you know, anxiety and angst. So the needs of the individual, which Dominic over right, are, yeah, sometimes we need to concentrate on the work at hand. Sometimes we need to get away from others and just put our heads down and get stuff done. Um, and the perception is, in an open office environment that is you know, the perception from most end users is that becomes more difficult because either uh, you're going to get distracted by your neighbor or you're going to get distracted by your neighbor as a perception in one of a number of ways. From noise, right? Overhearing conversations that don't necessarily align with the thing you're working on. Um, visual distractions, right? So right. someone walks by and they take me out of the moment and I was just about to have that great idea. Um, those tend to be the two things. Um, you also mentioned a sense of ownership, a sense of, sense of belonging, a sense of private it's it really comes down to privacy and owning your own space oftentimes especially in the, in the research on open office environments what pops is um, as human beings we are very aware of others around us now one of the benefits of those sensory deprivation chambers we call cubicles is that you are n- not aware of anything around yourself because you're surrounded by fabric <laughs> yeah. um, aside from the lack of lid over the top of your head um, but y- you're not aware of anything else and as a result of that you have a, more or less a false sense of privacy and 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 potentially a false sense of ownership. The reality is if I'm talking loudly on the phone next to Dominic, Dominic can hear every word I'm saying. And if I'm talking to my doctor about a personal problem, (laughs) Dominic can hear that too. But the push-pull that I was mentioning, right, comes back to the organizational needs. So the reality is we don't work by ourselves all day long. We work with others all day long because we're in the information age or past the information age and we exchange ideas. I mean, that's really what we're doing. We're communicating ideas all day long with one another. And then as we have good ideas that we want to develop further, that's when we need to go away and develop those ideas and then come back and share them with others. Um, so the organization needs people to work together and needs places where people can come together in new and productive and exciting ways um, outside of those kind of traditional, um, say, conference environments that are scheduled in 30-minute blocks. And so. The real challenge here is is balancing all those different modalities of work under one roof.
1: Well, and, and this kind of goes back to, I, I know, Brian, we've talked about this before. Drew's semi-alluding to it, um, but one of the big constraints in this whole conversation and actually the thing that we're never actually talking about is the speed of business. Right. And really the time component of this, right? You take it back in the day when you scheduled a meeting and you had to schedule that meeting one week out. You compare that to having to send a memo and the memo goes through normal mail, right? Like the amount of time that it takes to do business, everyone understands it's what it is. Nowadays, you've got business that's being used through email, IM, text messages, um, phone calls. Everything is expected to be done yesterday, So one of the big tensions that's currently happening in open office is a concern of a lot of people that they can't concentrate and focus. But the real thing that's occurring to them is they're being asked to do a lot more with a lot less a lot faster. And every company is doing that. Mm -hmm. So with that, we could talk about whether it's open office or closed office, but that problem in and of itself isn't, isn't directly rooted on how space is designed. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I I remember we talked about this in a different podcast, how um, early in my career, everybody had a 10 year plan, and then they had a five year plan. Now it's like they're lucky if they have a one year plan, because everything changes so fast. And plus, I've had it, I had it happen today where somebody emailed me late Friday, sent me something before lunch said, hey, you haven't responded to this message yet. And I'm like, wait a minute, you know, that was the end of that day and we're just in the beginning of the next one.
1: And that expectation of that instant feedback is really high. Right. So that instant feedback loop is creating stress for people in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then their concern is, is that if they're in an open environment that's stemming more collaboration, which it does do. Right. um, Collaboration that's arguably sometimes distracting. And guess what? Sometimes it is. The reality is they're trying to figure out how to deal with that situation that you just talked about, Brian, where someone emails you at the end of the day, wants something immediately in the middle of the next day. How do I even focus and get heads down time to produce? Right. And um, in general today, if you start looking at business, business is moving so fast, the big constraint that employees have is finding time to produce. Mm Mm-hmm which is why they're starting to push back on open office in general because they feel like they need time to do heads-down work. Right, so if I have my space and I have my privacy,
0: right, and I can focus, I'm not distracted, then maybe I can handle all these tasks that are coming at me faster and faster. Is that a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment.
1: Now, now, to where Drew was going before, it depends on what your job is and what your role is and what you're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. There's some roles within an organization that – that works. There's other roles that require a team. If you talk to anyone that has worked from home for long periods of time that is in a team-based position, they can tell you how hard it is to get work done and how detrimental it is to the team in general. And essentially, working from home, you can argue is the same thing as having a closed office in a, in a work environment. It is uh, similar, I, yeah similar, yeah. I can
0: relate to that (laughs) one anecdotally and personally, because working with uh, a team here on a very large master plan project, um, you know, I was contributing from afar and we had regular touch points, but when I came here and we locked ourselves into a room, there were only three of us for, I think it was half a day. Mm -hmm. We got more done in that day than in like the previous two weeks. And it was just, it was incredible. And there was a lot of energy and we were having fun and laughing. So like everybody's morale was higher, but we'd found a way to undistract ourselves by going into a conference room, you know? So we, we found a space and we made it work, but it is challenging feeling connected though. I,
2: I get that. And that, okay. But it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because oftentimes when we're touring through people's offices, contemporary office, right, especially if it's, a, say, a cubicle environment, that energy is happening behind closed doors. It is happening um, in a conference room where people are actually coming together. Now, the false myth with the the open office as defined by, you know, taking those partitions down and putting people side by side is that that collaboration is going to instantaneously happen all the time in all places. And that's part of the challenge, right? The reality is if that is occurring, it is to the detriment of those people who are not engaged in the conversation at hand because they're trying to do something else. And so um, what we are increasingly seeing our clients adopt is what's called activity-based work, which more or less is designing environments for particular, I said the word before, modalities of work. What that means is when I need to concentrate, I know that there's a place where I can do that, where not only is the space designed for that particular activity, but also um, the organization has put in practices, protocols, procedures that suggest how that space is meant to be used, right? And so there's a program in place alongside the design of space to say, this is what the norm is for this particular environment. In the same note, if I want to find a place to socialize with people, there's a dedicated place to do that. If I want to find a place to collaborate in a, and I said, a new and surprising way, there's a place to do that. If I need to take a call with a remote team member, there's a place to do that. And no, oh, by the way, all of these places are my places. They're not assigned to anyone else. I can take advantage of them as an individual employee, and so can the rest of our employees. And so the reality is these become shared resources for the organization, as opposed to spaces that are dedicated to individuals. And I think that's the fundamental shift here is treating the entire office as a a landscape on which you can paint as opposed to painting by numbers in individual cells, which is how the space was designed, say, 15, 20 years ago.
1: Well, and, and really what you're speaking to, Drew, is balance. It's balance of choice and balance of options and ultimately good design. When people talk about open office, the reality is there's lots of things out there that are bad design. Think of a neighborhood if we've got a neighborhood and we've got a dense area that's all housing and that's all that's there, it's going to operate very different than a neighborhood that has a main street with shopping and education and cultural areas and things of that nature. They could both fit in the same one-mile block, but they could operate and they could feel drastically different. That's kind of what we're talking about here. So if you talk about an activity-based solution like Drew's talking about, you're talking about actually creating a cultural society that's working together and has all these different things to support it. Whereas when we talk about the worst of open office, you're talking about your cookie-cutter neighborhood where there's nothing but houses For as far as the eye can see.
0: That's what I was just reading. Uh, There's this collective article. It's called Occupant Productivity and the Office Indoor Environment Quality, a review of the literature. And this is a compilation of all the existing literature on um, productivity and indoor environments. One of the things that I read in this was about office layout. Another piece was about noise, which I do want to come back to because Mm -hmm. I don't think we've addressed that because I know that in, in my interactions with clients, the number one concern is usually privacy. Uh, or distraction and distraction usually comes in the form of noise people mm-hmm. are worried about What's going to it's going to get louder when all these people are in here and this article addresses that specifically uh, But one thing about office layout there's this quote It says many pieces of research highlight that a mismatch of the office environment and an organization's work process leads to productivity loss and The idea is that it's laid out in a way that's not conducive to the way that that company works because you know I um, my perception is that a company that's doing web development is v- vastly different than an architectural firm mm-hmm. you know and how mm-hmm. that interaction happens there's some overlap but they wouldn't benefit from the exact same environment that we have so that one size fits all it's cast off the window. Fits no one, yeah. Fits no one, yeah. yeah. There
2: is a pendulum swing that has occurred in office design. So if we were to go in the Wayback Machine, say 100 years ago, we would be living in a space that would be called the American plan. And more or less what that design is, is a, a perimeter of offices with an interior that's more or less open, but... Um, devoid of light <laughs> and we'd all be sitting at long benches doing clerical work together and smoking and smoking yeah <laughs> <laughs> smoking a lot and maybe even like taking a little little nips of our flask right. out of our right. out of our drawer <laughs> um, but the American plan was really popular um, and, and developed alongside um, the development of, of office work, right? So, office work as a concept is, say, 100 years old. It's relatively new in the development of humanity because the vast majority of us were working in the fields or in the military or in the mines before that. Um, <clears throat> so, the office as a concept actually developed contemporaneously with the development of the US, right? In cities like Chicago and New York, as we were able to build larger spaces to house more people doing work together. Now the American plan was more or less adopted by uh, people across the pond, let's say, um, as a copy and paste. So the, the the American plan migrated to Europe, but in Europe there were a couple of brothers, the the uh, Schnell brothers over in Germany, that actually challenged the American plan. And what they said was, well, <clears throat> space shouldn't be designed according to these um, strict rules. Actually, space should be designed according to the work processes being undertaken by those people who inhabit the space. And so these two brothers, Schnell, um, developed something that you would think would be highly rational, and it was, but it did not look highly rational at all. So um, we'll put some pictures online at bHdp bhdp.com that referenced some of the things we're talking about today, um, <clears throat> but what they developed was called the borough landscape, and what that amounted to was an organic office environment with clusters of different activities, clusters of different desks, clusters of different places for people to more or less process information, which is what offices are typically used for. Um, that was extremely organic and also extremely chaotic. <laughs> um, <laughs> so really difficult to comprehend. Now, fast forward another 20 years, and there were a couple of developers at the Herman Miller Company, uh, Probst and uh, another gentleman whose name is escaping me right now, but uh, they looked at the borough landshaft plans and they said, there's something here, but we can't necessarily Uh, manufacture it and scale it. And so at Herman Miller, right, a company that's interested in certainly selling furniture, but also in (laughs) resolving uh, the workplace conflict, they developed what was called Action Office. And Action Office, the first iteration, was basically a kit of parts that was highly customizable depending on the needs of of the workforce. It was also very expensive. And so uh, Probst and his buddy went back to the drawing board and they said, Well, how can we economize this? So how can we um, rationalize it and actually make it something that people can afford to buy? As a result, they developed what we know and love today, the cubicle. And so Action Office 2 was the cubicle. The cubicle's rolled out carte blanche across the US because it's highly affordable and easy to install. But the reality is the cubicle as a universal solution, back to the point about um, one size fits all doesn't fit anyone, the cubicle does not fit um, all job functions, right? Because all jobs aren't created equally. And so we're more or less back to where we started, right? We started with the American plan. Doesn't fit everyone because all jobs are different. Yet. Back to the cubicle, all jobs aren't the same. And now the pendulum is swinging back, not towards a borough land shaft, but towards something that's a little bit different, where we're trying to design based on the needs of the business and according to the processes under which the business um, operates.
0: Now, Part of the understanding that I have of how we got to where we are today is... Open office was a concept that happened out of necessity um, as Silicon Valley boom started to happen during the early tech boom days when they needed to staff up quickly. They bought big empty spaces and put in as many people in as they could. Then what happened is people said, well, that business is successful. We need to do whatever they're doing. And then they started replicating it in their own plans. And now there's a lot of pain and suffering on the back end because of that, because it was actually done out of necessity and not because they were particularly innovative in doing so. Um, Is that, have you heard the same or am I? Yeah, definitely heard the
2: same. I love Dominic's perspective here too, because I'm sure a lot of the clients that you're working with are looking um, out at the West Coast and saying, hey, if we could get a little bit of that, we'd solve our attraction and retention problems, say, which is something that comes up pretty frequently.
1: Who's Jack Kelly, by the way? Jack Kelly was was the other Herman Miller guy. I, I think I think you're right, Drew. There's a lot of companies that look out at the West Coast currently and they think the West Coast is where innovation is occurring. And they're, they're pretty much applying that to everything because of innovation that is occurring there from the technology fields. And if you look at what most of the West Coast is doing is they're looking at saying, how do you create full-out community associated with Office Place? So it started with your Googles and your your apples, m- more specifically your Google, though, uh, looking at can we create a place for dining where we actually bring food to everyone? Can we create fitness centers that people want to go to? They're at the point now that I think they're actually busing people in on really high-end buses out of San Francisco. So the progression is there. We kind of call it, even though this has nothing to go- do with Google or Apple, we call it kind of the Starbucks phenomenon because... Where we're at today is everyone sees Starbucks, they see how successful they've been, especially three or four years ago, and they wanted their office to look like Starbucks because everyone was working at Starbucks. Right. Mm-hmm. that kind of same thing is happening with Google. Now, if you actually look at what they're doing in terms of technology integration at some of those companies, I would not say that they're they're bleeding edge in, in terms of looking at how technology gets integrated into the space. Um, but they don't have to be because they're just trying to create a place where people want to stay and they want to collaborate and they want to innovate.
0: Right. And that's the, the Google phenomenon, as I understood it, too. Um, a lot of people react to that negatively because I worked with a client that said, whatever you do, don't make it like that. We don't want that here. But they obviously did something vastly different. My understanding of that space is they understood that um, people have their best ideas at random times, sometimes when they're relaxed. And so they create this environment that people don't want to leave so that they can collect all the ideas so that person doesn't go home and have a great idea and start their own company, right? So that was specifically designed for specific behaviors.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they had their culture in mind first and then designed the space to support the culture that they Mm desire.
2: That's but you business. can't adopt someone else's culture wholesale, yeah. and I think that's one of the, the foundational principles of our business, is that all companies are not created equal. There's a secret sauce to every company, and it's our job as uh, good strategists and designers to tap into to that secret sauce and more or less scale the magic. Um, so what makes Google great is not going to make your company great. What's going to make your company great is what already has made your company great to date. How can we tap into that? How can we find out what's unique to you and how can we scale it? And oh, by the way, how can we design spaces for your people that accommodate the balance of needs that they have in any particular time? Well, and time? that's
1: where the open office thing starts to get interesting, right? There's, there's a belief out there that all open offices are the same. So you start into getting into companies growing, companies changing and corporate real estate needs. They think that they can sometimes just go out and lease space that already has furniture in it that was set up for open office. Supports a hundred people. I have a hundred people. I can plug them in. It should work. Yeah. When it doesn't work, it's not anything's fault except for the fact that it's open office. When the reality, it goes to a strategy that doesn't actually look at what's best for the business and building a design solution that supports the culture of that specific company. But that happens all the time.
2: Yeah. Oftentimes we're presented with a space, right? And the first question is how many people will it fit? And the reality is, I mean, you can calculate how many people the space will fit, um, based on, say, developing a fit plan, which is at this point more or less an outmoded way of answering that question, or backing into a or, metric, or how backing many into square a metric. feet per person are we willing to put in here? Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. But with a, you know, using a number of different strategies, right? The reality is that a space that say is designed for 100 people might be able to accommodate 150, 200 people. Not every day, but a population of that amount. By adopting potentially uh, a a variety of strategies with respect to the workforce so some people might come in a couple days a week some people might come in a couple days a month some people might come in once a year other people will be there every single day reliably day in and day out and that's just the reality of the contemporary workforce.
1: Well Drew and you're starting to get into another conversation and that other conversation is what starts to give people an opinion of open office but it's this idea of desk sharing and um, more mobile solutions associated with open office.
0: We close part one of our open office conversation, suggesting a few behavioral and work style changes in workplace design. Thank you for joining Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, subscribe and give us a review. Join us for part two, where we continue our conversation with Drew Susco and Dominic Yakabuchi of BHDP, but with a focus on a different way to approach office design that hopefully leaves the open office concept behind.